They're God's laws. They're not going to be broken. When we push against them, we break ourselves against his laws. We're currently in Exodus chapter number 20, uh, verses number 12 through 14. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you bring them, I want to encourage you to turn there to Exodus chapter number 20, verse number 12. We'll be there in just a moment. We're in a series going verse by verse through the book of Exodus. And so we've spent the entire year moving through Exodus, really helping us understand what each chapter is about. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been in Exodus chapter number 20, which is often referred to, is often commonly known as the Ten Commandments. Of course, Moses goes up to Sinai, God gives them these laws that he wants them to take back to his people, the chosen people, children of Israel, and so there he gives them these Ten Commandments, and we're taking some time to march through those during this time. So what we saw was that the first Four commandments had to do with these people's relationship with God. And, and that's really where this starts out. If we don't have a proper relationship with God, it's very, very difficult to have a proper relationship with those around us. And so the first four commandments, I would say, were vertical in nature, where the second six commandments that we're going to start diving into are what we would say they are horizontal in nature. And to the degree that you really get the vertical commandments correct and you align with God's will on those, it makes it that much easier to get the horizontal commandments working in and through your life by God's grace and through his spirit. And so that's what we're going to dive in today. We're going to start in Exodus chapter number 20. We're going to deal with three of these uh, today and then we'll uh, take care of the rest next week. And so for those of you who are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand as we read from our text today, Exodus chapter number 20 will be in verse number 12 through verse number 14. The Bible says in Exodus chapter number 20, verse number 12, honor your father and your mother so that you may, amen, I heard some parents with young children giving a hearty amen to that. And so praise the Lord for that. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 13, you shall not murder, all right? Now, I think it's very interesting that the thou shalt not murder comes directly after a verse about children honoring and obeying their parents, you know? I, I don't know what the correlation there is, but I think there's something to that a little bit, you know? So kids, teenagers, don't tempt your parents to murder you, all right? Just obey them. That's, I think that's what the Lord's trying to give us here. Okay, all right, let's keep reading. Verse number 14, you shall not commit adultery, all right? We're going to dive into our study this morning as we start in verse number 12, through verse number 14. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll begin our Bible study. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we love you. Lord, we pray and ask that you would give us, Lord, the grace that we need to align ourselves with your will. Lord, we understand on a deep level that we do not, in fact, in reality, break your laws. It's, it, it's a logical fallacy. It can't be done. When in reality, we break ourselves against your laws. And so, Lord, I pray that we would find wholeness through your grace, through your spirit, that you would give us your strength and power to align ourselves with your ultimate will for our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated here at this time. Notice what the scriptures say in verse number 12. We'll dive in right there. Notice where the Bible says, honor your father and your mother, all right? This is the one commandment in the six that is framed as a positive thing to do 
as opposed to something we should not do, all right? And so this is going to be setting the stage and saying this is something that's important. Now, I know when we read that verse, the first perspective is to think of our little children or to think of our teenagers, when in reality, this is something that is given to all individuals, regardless of your age, whether you be 12 years old or you be 70 years old. The reality is all of us are called to a ministry of honoring our parents. And if your parents are 40 years old, 60 years old, or 80 years old, if they're living, God calls us to honor them. There is something in the way in which we honor our physical father, our physical mother, that allows us to be in a heart posture to honor our heavenly father. It's where we learn those things. And it can be very difficult to do, specifically if your relationship with your physical father is a little bit more difficult or tough. But we see this in Colossians chapter number 3, verse 20. It says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. It is very, there is a reason why this commandment is first when it comes to the horizontal commandments. It is because it is in the home where there are godly parents training their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord where they begin to come to a place where they can truly obey these other commandments, where they get a heart for these others. And it starts in the home. It starts with the parent's responsibility of encouraging these things. So number one, honor your father and mother. Uh, King Edward VIII made a trip out to America and uh, while he was here, you know, he did a lot of things. He had some uh, kind of government uh, functions that he had to attend. And we got home and, and uh, uh, somebody from the newspaper asked him a question. He said, what impressed you about the Americans? And this is what he had to say. He said, the thing that impresses me most about Americans is the way parents obey their children. <laughs> you see, there is this this reality that it's so easy to get caught up in wanting to be our kids best friend that we don't teach them and we don't help them we don't nurture them in the things of God Ephesians chapter number six verse one children the Bible says obey your parents part of honoring involves obedience can I say this if you have kids it's it's part of your responsibility to teach them to obey not because you're wanting to lord over them, but because as we teach them to obey, what happens is we give them access to a grace that is only available in that way. Honor your father and mother. The reality is the average person who moves out of their home by the time they're 18, 19 years old, think about this, when you moved out of your home at 18, 19 years old, the majority of people by that point had spent 90% of the time that they will spend with their parents has been done by the time you move out. So if you've moved out of your home, literally 90% of the time you'll spend with them is past. And I want to encourage us to love, appreciate, and honor our parents. We often get so busy growing up that we forget our parents are growing old. And so God calls us to this ministry of honoring. Why? Because it is in honoring our physical family, our physical parents, that our heart posture is molded to honor our heavenly father. But let's keep reading. Not only does it talk about honoring father and mother, notice what the Bible says in verse number 13. It says, you shall not murder. <laughs> I saw a bumper sticker. I was driving down the road one day, and it said... <laughs> It's a little, a little passive-aggressive, but it says some people are only alive because it's illegal to murder. 
Ever met somebody like that? Don't murder. Um, it was W.H. Auden who said this. He says, murder is unique in that it abolishes the party it injures so that another has to take the place of the victim on their behalf to demand atonement and grant forgiveness. This is what makes murder unique. You see, everything in our culture is directly connected to a failure in following God's perfectly designed biblical order. When there's something chaotic in culture, when there's something chaotic in families, it, uh, it comes back to not perfectly aligning with God's ultimate desire and design for the way people or families or government should work. Matthew chapter 5 verse 21 says, you've heard it said by people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to that same judgment as well. And Jesus comes along and he says, hey, you want the law? I'll bring the law down heavy to the degree that literally when God looks down and he sees the angry heart that produces murder, he's saying that demands the same judgment. And what that does is it reminds us of the fact that we are in desperate need of grace. Because how many here can say, you know what, I've never been angry with anybody before. So we see here, don't murder, honor father and mother. Notice verse number 14. Notice verse number 14. It says, you shall not commit adultery. Now, I realize this is a kind of a mixed setting. We've got kids in here, so I'm going to try to keep this PG, but I also want to get to the point. If we're not careful, oftentimes what happens is what we're seeing here is adultery is anything that involves lying, deceiving, betraying both your spouse. But here's the deal. Ultimately, it's a betrayal of God. As marriage is a picture of God's Christ union with his church, it's a compromise. It's breaking our integrity with God. It forces you to compromise your integrity. It forces you to compromise your relationship with a spouse. Probably one of the most awkward experiences I've ever had, personally, as a pastor. I remember, and I've, I've dealt with this in counseling sessions on, on several occasions, far too many, more than I would prefer. But I remember on one occasion, I was working with a couple uh, the man had been caught in adultery. We were working through it. We were doing our best to kind of navigate it. He had repented, came to a place where he recognized what he had done. But there was obviously, as you can imagine, there was a lot of friction in the, in the relationship. And so the wife had asked, as <laughs> a young pastor, the wife had come to me and said, would you go with my husband to the other woman's house so I can know for sure he broke it off? I didn't know, I, I mean, I was new to the pastor. I was like, I don't know, okay, here we go. We drove over to Clovis. I'm like, what am I doing? You know, I, we're walking up to the door. I'm thinking, like, I, I don't think I fully thought through this whole thing because I'm kind of thinking to myself, man, does the husband know what's going to happen? Are there going to be guns? Is murder going to come into this? I'm thinking, I don't know that I want to be in this situation. Sure enough, he knocks on the door. And basically, I was there to be a witness. So I could go back and say, hey, I think this thing is settled. I think this thing is done. And uh, I opened the door. He's like, hey, I want you to know. And he had already communicated that we were on our way. It's over. It was kind of a brief thing. It was there. It was done. It was over. And pff, we were gone. I was like, man, I'm so glad to have that done. It's just awkward. And whenever there is this type of egregious against the law, I'm telling you what, it hurts. Most people cheat. 
because they're paying more attention to what they're missing rather than what they have. I want to focus on a couple aspects of this. I want to I spend just a moment talking about the deceit. I, on one occasion, I was talking uh, to a man, and, and what's interesting is in, the, in my personal experience, and I realize this is just antidotal, but in my personal experience, it's, it's about half and half where a husband will cheat on a wife or a wife will cheat on a husband. Like, you know, there, there's kind of, there was this mindset back in the day where it was just something guys did and, and that the statistics aren't showing that anymore and my personal experiences are not showing that anymore. It, it's really, it really cuts both ways here. And he said this. He was kind of getting this idea that this was happening in his relationship, in his marriage, and he made this statement. He said, the truth is still blurry, but the lies are getting clearer and clearer and clearer. And I think what happens sometimes is we enter into this type of betrayal, we enter into this type of relationship, and we, 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 we convince ourselves, hey, nobody will know. We can keep this thing a secret. There won't be any drama. It'll just kind of be us and our thing, and that, that'll be it. And, and what we don't remember is when you're related to somebody, they know you so well that even when they don't know the specific details of what is going on, they are still very much aware of the energy of what's being experienced. You can't hide this from somebody. You can hide specific details, but you cannot hide the reality. And while the truth might be blurry, the lies become clearer and clearer and clearer. And maybe you are here and you're like, well, you know, man, I, I'm, I'm able to succeed at cheating and nobody's going to find out and this is not going to be known. Can, can I, don't stand back and think you're smarter than somebody. If that is the case and maybe to some degree there's this mindset that you can get away with something, just realize that the person trusted you way more than you deserved not that you're so smart. I think the toughest thing when I talk to couples that are going through this type of situation, it's not just that spouses get lied to that makes them so upset. It's not just the betrayal. It's how hard it is for them to believe anything the spouse says in the future. That's so difficult. <sighs> so often before a physical affair happens, nine times out of ten it starts with an emotional affair. And I'll, I'll just say this, having friends and being kind to people of the opposite gender, I, that, there's, uh, that's good, that's probably healthy in a, in a, in a, in a healthy manner. But there is a fine line between there having just friendship and crossing a line to an emotional, romantic connection, an emotional affair, where all of a sudden the, the flirting pushes the boundaries, the sexual innuendos become more frequent, the sexting on the phones the little white lies, the emotional distance, the decline in emotional and physical intimacy with our partners, all of a sudden now, what was just emotional starts to become pushed into the physical. You say, well, how do, I, how do you know when you're crossing that line? I, unfortunately, I've had to deal with several different 
situations where by God's grace it didn't cross into a physical relationship but the emotional affair causes much damage as well because of the betrayal because of the lies you say well how do you know if that's where you're at can I just say this if you've got to delete or hide messages so your spouse doesn't see them or use a secret little app so they're not aware of what's going on you're probably already there If you're like, man, the heart, how, how do I know if that's where I'm at? Th- that's, a, that's a pretty good indicator of where those things fall. And, and then we ask ourselves, what's the damage? Because sometimes we think, oh, the damage is just in what it does to the other person. Can I remind you of something? It's not just that it damages a spouse. It's not just that it damages the significant other. The reason we are called to fall into alignment in this area with God is because it's not that we break these laws. We break ourselves against them. What it does to the heart of a spouse that is involved in that kind of deceit, involved in that kind of betrayal, involved in that kind of hurt, it's not just that you're hurting your marriage. You're hurting you. And God says, I love you too much to allow you to do that to your mental health, to do that to your emotional health, to do that to your spiritual health. I love you, and I want something better for you. One expert talked about kind of the the damage to mental health that this type of betrayal does. And, and, And they were communicating the fact that all of us will admit that the future is unpredictable. How many of you would say, yeah, future is unpredictable, right? I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen next week. I don't know what's going to happen next month. The future is unpredictable. Who knows what the future is? What is interesting about betrayal is that we tend to think the future is unpredictable, but the past is totally predictable, right? Like we know what happened in the past. And so because the past is predictable, we're able to anchor future decisions based on what we know of the past. That's where we get our, that's where we kind of get our bearings on how to navigate into the future is based on the predictability of what's happened in the past. What betrayal does, betrayal all of a sudden brings you to a place now where now not only is the future unpredictable, but get this, the past also becomes unpredictable. Because you thought you knew something about the past. You thought you knew where that person was. You thought you knew who they were, the identity they had, your identity with them, how the world worked. And all of a sudden, when this type of situation starts coming up, it starts to unravel your entire framework, your entire worldview moving forward. Because what you thought was true, what you thought were facts, what you thought existed in a certain area, and it's like, it's all falling. You, You don't know what's true anymore. And psychologically, all of a sudden, the future was unpredictable, but now the past is unpredictable. And there's this weird kind of mental anguish that comes on because you don't know how to navigate the future anymore because you don't know what's true. All of a sudden, now spouses have to get into the situation. This is tough when you get into that place where a spouse, because they know their loved one so well, and, and can I just say, if you've been married for more than three years or something, your, your spouse, I'm just telling you, I've been through this so many times, your spouse knows when something's going on. They might not know details, but they'll know. They'll know something. And so you have a choice to make because all of a sudden you'll start leaning into that, somebody will start leaning into it, and, 
and now all we now the lies have to come out. Now what was just a lie now becomes betrayal. And before we know it, we're gaslighting our spouse. We're telling, no, 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 it's not going on, it's not going on. I've seen it time after time after time after time. And now the spouse who's being cheated on is going crazy in their head because everything in their heart's telling them something's true. And their spouse who they think loves them and cares about them is saying, no, that's not real, that's not true, that's not going on. And it, it starts to it wear the mental, the, just the anguish that comes in that moment that gaslighting that happens. You're, it's literally like a form of psychological torture. Because spirit's bearing witness with spirit and spirit doesn't lie, energy doesn't lie. It says this is what's happening and when the spouse saying something, it just creates this mental anguish. It's like how do you navigate through those things? The psychologist ended with this statement. He said, perhaps in affairs and cheating and betrayal, robbing someone of their history and story is perhaps the greatest betrayal of all. Robbing them of what they thought their history was, what they thought their story was, how they thought the world worked, and robbing them of that. Proverbs chapter number five, verse 18 says this, May the fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Your spouse is an incredible gift of grace. And when God gives us these commands, he doesn't give them to us to rob us of fun. He doesn't give it to us to rob us of joy. He gives it to us as a measure, as a means of grace, and as a means of joy. And I want to say in a way of hope today, if this is an area that you're struggling in, and I'm just going to be quite honest, I'm going to just be blunt for a second, statistics will tell us in a room this size, this is going on to some degree. It just is. It's just, that's just math. And I, you guys, this is a great church, and I love you guys, and I'm for you. But mathematically, either on an emotional level or on a physical level, and here's what I want to encourage you with. If this is a temptation that you have, can I say this, to the hope to the one that's leaning into this, can I say to you, find out why. Like, why is it that your heart is being drawn to that? Are you bored? Then fix that root issue of boredom. If it's a midlife crisis, figure out, man, what, what, what needs to happen to move through this? If your marriage is in a bad place, then, then work on it. Like, let's get to the root of why this stuff is happening. Get to the heart of this. Why? Because God has grace for you to navigate this in your life. I want to say to those of you who have been on the receiving end, as the heart grieves over what is lost, and, and, and to some degree, if you've experienced this type of betrayal or this type of pain, you feel a loss. And I want to say to you, while the heart might grieve over what is lost, I want to encourage you with this, that the spirit can rejoice over what is left. Something's left. And if you've been hurt by this, I want to say this, praise God that his grace is sufficient even in this. Even in this type of betrayal, even in this type of hurt, 
God's grace is sufficient for you. And maybe it's your children that are left. But I want to say this, regardless of what left, God's grace is always left. His mercy is always left. And we do not say these things to crush you. We do not say these things to shame you. We say this so we can come to a place where we recognize, I want God's best for my life. And I think we all want God's best. So, we do not break God's laws. But in reality, we break ourselves against them. We break our marriages against them. We break our families against them. We break our finances against them. We break our futures against them. And often cases, we break our finances against them. And so God in his love and God in his mercy and God in his grace comes to us and says, hey, I have hope for you. And the hope is found in the fact that there is full satisfaction in the person of Christ, fully. That's our hope. That all these places that your heart craves to find satisfaction in and your heart is drawn to find satisfaction in, that God's word comes along and says, no, there is full satisfaction, there is fulfillment, there is contentment found in a thriving relationship with Jesus. When you're experiencing his grace and you're enjoying his mercy and you're feasting on his blessing, it satisfies fully. And when we find ourselves leaning or being tempted toward these different things, let that be a reminder and say, God, what, what am I not finding my satisfaction in you? Because whenever these types of temptations pop up, they could be a trigger and say, God, what do I, where, where do I need to find more satisfaction in you? Where do I need to find more contentment in you? And that's our hope. Our hope is not being, having enough willpower, you know, to, you know, not murder that person that we hate. Now, I hope most of us have enough willpower, you know. But the, the hope is not that you'll have enough willpower to never cheat on your spouse. That, like, that's... That's not your hope. Your hope is in the fact that Jesus is enough. And, and I want to I plead with you today. If you've not experienced Jesus in that way, there's more to Jesus than you're experiencing. There's more of his grace than you're experiencing. And that's the hope, that you can experience him deeply and richly and profoundly. Here's the takeaway. You'll never go wrong, you'll never go wrong doing what's right. You'll never go wrong doing what's right. By God's grace, you can move forward. I wanna encourage you with this, I wanna encourage you to just surrender and say, God, whatever, when we're, when we're moving through this, not out of guilt, I'm not, I'm not gonna surrender to these things out of guilt, I'm not gonna surrender to these things out of this sense of duty, I wanna surrender them out of a sense of gratitude from a right heart posture that says, I am so satisfied in everything that Christ makes available to me, I find full fulfillment and completeness in Jesus that I no longer need so many of these things that would draw me to break myself, to break my mental health, to break me emotionally, to break my relationships. I don't need that because I am full. I am complete in Jesus. Never go wrong. Do what's right. Can I encourage us? Let's come with a heart of surrender and say, God, not my will, but thy will be done. Dear Heavenly Father,
Lord, we love you. And I pray that you would give us a heart of surrender. A heart that says, God, help! I want to surrender fully to you so I can experience you fully. So I can experience your grace fully. So I can experience your love fully. So I can experience your hope fully. Lord, that I would be so satisfied in everything you make available that these lesser things, Lord, would grow strangely dim. Lord, I pray that you would give me a peace that passeth understanding. That I would find full satisfaction in you and you alone. God, I pray that you would just continue to meet with us as we have hearts of surrender. We pray in Jesus' name.